it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 680 for April 6, 2021, and I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Greg Vanderheiden, Professor and Director Trace, R&D Center at the College of Information Studies at the University of Maryland. Now, if his name sounds familiar, it's because I recently interviewed him on the NoSillaCast about a product called Morphic. When we were preparing for that interview, Greg started to tell me some fascinating stories about the earliest days of accessibility, and I asked him if he'd come back and tell us about it in Chit Chat Across the Pond. So welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. So I normally have an outline of questions that I ask my guests, and I want to make sure I get certain answers, and it's super structured on Chit Chat Across the Pond. But this episode is going to be more like story time. I'm going to sit back and relax because uh, Greg has some amazing stories. So the first time we talked, Greg, you told me that you've been working in accessibility for literally 50 years. I I guess we start 50 years ago. (laughs) <laughs> yes. So 50 years ago, I was a senior in electrical engineering, and I worked at a behavioral cybernetics lab. And one day, a, a fellow came down and uh, was looking for one of the researchers there who had done uh, eye gaze research. <clears throat> and uh, I said he wasn't there, but uh, being nosy, I asked what it was about. So you and, asked, what uh, is eye gaze? Uh, oh, uh, the ability to... Uh, have something that would track where you're looking. Okay. Um, and so I asked him why, and he said, well, there's this boy that was out at a school who had cerebral palsy, and he couldn't speak or write or communicate. And so he was heard about the, this researcher, Pat, who was doing research with eye gaze to see if maybe they could use eye gaze as a way to let this boy communicate. And... Um, so I said, well, I don't think it's going to work because, you know, you have to be in a room with all the lights turned off and you have to bite on a bite block. And in those days, it was done with bouncing uh, LED light off your um, off your eye. And um, and it takes about five or ten minutes for him to slowly get these things all adjust each time you sit down. Um, so then he left and he came back. I saw him come back a couple days later. He's walking out from back. And I said, oh, did you see Pat? Oh, yeah. Did you try it? Yep. And he said, what do you think? And he says, oh, I don't think it'll work. You see, first he turned all the lights out. And then <laughs> then he made me bite on this bite block. And I sat there for like 15 minutes while he finally tried to get these things to, to work with me. So um, so uh, being a helpful Hannah, I said, well, you know, I've been thinking about it. So if, if uh, why don't you try this? And if that doesn't work, why don't you try this? And if that doesn't work, why don't you try that? And, uh, and he kept saying, I don't understand, I don't understand, and I kept repeating it. And, and um, uh, the last thing I remember him saying was, um, well, he said, "There's uh, my car's outside, it's a sunny day, and it's only like six blocks from here, why don't you come? <laughs> and I remember saying, you expect me to walk out of work in the middle of the afternoon? And the next thing I knew, I was out at the school. So I don't know what he did, but, but he got me out there. And, and I uh, saw this young lad. And um, they had a piece of wood that somebody had wood burned the letters of the alphabet into. And and then he would slowly point to, you know, one character and then he would point to the next character. It is assistive tech. Technically, it's assistive tech. Communication board. And um, so that was that slow. Uh, But um, this this guy was spunky. I mean, he slowly spelled out his message, but he was a little bit of a, I don't want to say a smart aleck, but, <laughs> but, but 
there was irony in his in, in his stuff. His it was, he was oh, just a twelve-year-old nice. kid, right? Nice, nice. And uh, the uh, so I quit my job. Uh, <laughs> I I had three ideas. You remember? Yeah. And the first one I threw out when I saw him. The second one I threw out when I started working with him. And the third one worked, but it was slower than his pointing. Oh, so, no. okay. um, but it would be automatic, and he could do it when he was, you know, because the other one, if he's doing that. He can't talk unless somebody's spending nothing but just staring at that board. Oh, and right. as soon as you as soon as you look up from the board, it's like you put your hand over their mouth. Yeah, yeah. So they depend on it's, you to it, it, you don't think of it. You just they're slowly doing it and so you get, you know, tired of doing it. So you look up and you start talking to them or something like this. And it's just like you put your hand over their mouth. But at any rate, oh, um so I got taken by the guy and and the idea that I had wasn't going to really uh, solve the problem completely or adequately. So I quit my job. I joined up with this other guy and we put together, uh, ended up putting together a, a group of about 15 and it turned into 20 students from all these different departments on campus. And we formed a group which then grew into the Trace R&D Center, which is a, a big R&D center uh, today uh, that was at Wisconsin. Now it's at the University of Maryland. Wait a but minute. So first you, you were you were hesitating to walk out of the, the workplace in the middle of the day to get in this guy's car. And the next thing you know, you've quit your job. <laughs> yeah. And, and later I figured out that um, he was a senior in, in electrical engineering, specializing in biomedical engineering. Um, and, and, you know. It was kind of naive at the time. He knew what I was describing. I wasn't describing anything complicated. <laughs> I'm in this field for 50 years because I was tricked. <laughs> he tricked me by just saying, I don't understand. Come out, show me. And all the time, all he oh wanted to do is to get me out there to meet that young lad. Because he knew if you if you uh, met him, you might be intrigued enough to think this would be fun. Yeah. So we started working out for him, and then all of a sudden, we went on a telethon, and everybody else started saying, oh, I have a child like this, I have a child like that, I have a child that's like that, but then some of them were, and some of them were different, they had a different problem, and I just uh, never got out of it. So I've been just uh, started off with in communication, uh, and then uh, went into computer access and into universal design. So um, back, back up a little bit, uh, what, what does TRACE mean? Oh. The TRACE <laughs> R&D Center, does, is that an acronym, or...? No, um, if, um, we actually, uh, I mean, we made up all sorts of things that it could stand for. Um, <laughs> uh, one of them was totally reprehensible and corrupt engineers. Um, the, um, uh, no, we were, uh, way back, uh, we were writing grants and, uh, we were writing this one very, very large grant. This is still while we were all students. So, um, I had gotten special permission from the chancellor to be a principal investigator while I was still a student. Um, and uh, we had gotten a series of, of grants and NSF grants and, and other ones. And uh, we're writing a big one, which in today's dollars would be about a million dollar uh, grant. And yeah, a bunch of undergrad students and grad students and stuff. Um, the, um, and and we thought it really looked like it was too big and it had too many parts to be just coming from a from a group, so we decided we should be a center. So at three in the morning, we decided to name ourselves, um, and we were trying to come up with a name, and the only names came up to Glurfrnagrumf. You know, every time we came up with a, something, you couldn't pronounce it. 
to so, combine your names or something. Yeah. So I had written down race on a piece of paper and everybody was sort of off brainstorming and working on writing the proposal. And then I wrote trace and I said, oh, that sounds good. It sounded crisp. <laughs> and uh, so sort of sounds like boom. three. Everybody liked it. So <laughs> uh, so that we were the trace center for no reason. Um, when people say, <laughs> you know, what does trace stand for? I go truth, justice and the American. They go T. Uh, wait a minute. <laughs> So, okay. Uh, so, so you've got, uh, you've started this little company and, uh, people are saying my kid needs this kind of care or this kind of help. And my kid needs that kind of help. And, and unfortunately, you know, people with disabilities are really, uh, inconsiderate and they don't all have the exact same disability, which makes it so much harder. Uh, but, uh, as you're, as you look at this, what did you, where did you take it from there? Well, we, um, the, we began working on different types of communication, uh, and, um, the um, as we were looking at this, we started gathering all this information. And at the time, nobody actually wrote about anything except their own work. So if you're trying to find out what was out there, it was just really hard to find it. So after we had gathered it all, we decided, well, this is crazy. So we started putting it together into a compendium. And so we created uh, a website and then uh, later, but in the beginning it was all, this is pre-web and stuff. So we, were, we printed up uh, some books, um, resource books that listed all of the different work wow. from all of the different people and all the different products. And this is all still while we're uh, working um, on our degree, degrees on the side um, and as we're students at the university. And... Um, and, and, and publishing them out. So pretty soon the, the Trace Center became very well known as being the place to go to for information. Um, and then uh, when computers came out, um, one of the things that happened with the microcomputers that we saw was there were a lot of people doing special programs for special people. So like a, a typewriter for the, for the blind, you know, a talking typewriter for the blind or something like this. And we got really worried about the fact that that computers were going to soon be something that everybody was using and it was going to be used in schools. And so people who had disabilities needed to be able to access not the computer to do special things. They need to be able to access it to do everything everybody else did. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it, I'm going to I'm going to make that extra point there. People don't often realize that people with disabilities just want to do what everybody else wants to do. You know, I, oh, yeah. I I hear from vendors going, well, why would a blind person want to do that? Well, why would a sighted person want to do it? Same reason, you know. Oh. They, they, but it's it's easy to get into your head thinking, oh, they want to do this. They'll only want to do this little part of life. They won't want to do everything. And I, it's it's fascinating. A uh, a great story and a and a not so great story around that exact topic. Um, I was once speaking to the CEO, um, VP of uh, I'm sorry, VP of uh, at a very, very, very large uh, IT company. And um, we'd gotten an audience with him and we were explaining, you know, accessibility and, and the importance of having accessibility. And um, uh, at one point he said, um, why don't you make a law that says we have to do this? And I, my teeth almost fell out of my head. You know, this is not what you hear. And I said, um, sure, but that's not what I would expect to hear from a VP. And he said, well, he said, let me tell you, he said, um, when you came in, um, I was going to meet with you 
And then I'll be honest, I was going to take all the paperwork he gave me and drop it in the wastebasket as I walked back to my desk. Um, but he said, you've really convinced me that this is really important. He said, it never occurred to me that people with disabilities would use my product. Um, and it's not that that I can't. And, and he said, and it never occurred to me that different people would have different problems. He said, yeah. it's it's not that I thought they didn't have different problems. It's just that I never thought of them at all. Uh, he said, but the reason that I said you should have a regulation, he said, I'm going to go back to my office and on my desk are going to be five stacks of paper and um, two of them are going to be smoking and one of them is going to be on fire. And I'm going to try and put out the fire. And by the time I get that done, one of the smokers is going to burst into flame and I'm going to try and put that one out. And um, and then I'm going to go home and I'm coming back and the one of the other stacks is going to be smoking and the other one's going to be on fire and I'll put out the fire. And then my, uh, well, he had secretaries back then. So he said, my secretary would come in and she'd bring me three more stacks. One at least is always on fire. And, um, and your papers are still going to be in the corner. I'm not going to put, I'm going to put them right on my desk and they'll be sitting in the corner of my desk and six months from now, they'll be sitting on the corner of my desk and I'll still be putting out fires. Mm -hmm. He said, if you make a regulation, your stack will start to smoke. Oh, what an interesting way to look at that. And that, and, and that yeah. really tells a story because people in the disability community, et cetera, are always saying, you know, don't they see how important this is? And, and they go, yeah, but they just, it's not that they don't want to get to it. It's just that they don't get to it. One of the or ways I've, I've tried to, to shift that needle and it doesn't make it smoke or on fire, but maybe it's, it's uh, you know, kindling at least, is I try to approach it from the perspective of a competitive advantage. Uh, I, I did a talk at um, a Blog World Expo a long time ago called uh, How to Increase Your Audience Size Through Accessibility. Because everybody on earth wants to increase their audience size. Everybody, right? There and anybody who's thinking, I wish I had fewer yeah. customers. And so I started from that angle and tried to get in going, why would you want to close the door? Do you know how many people you're talking about? And then you give them this giant number of millions of people who are visually impaired and, and hearing impaired and more. Yeah, and an interesting one. We actually even um, uh, showed where you the amount of money it took to make it, make it accessible was less than the amount of money you would make if it was accessible. And Wait, you mean the, the other way around? Uh, Wait, it, it was less costly to make it accessible than to not make it accessible. Yes, the yeah. amount of money you would make if it was accessible, uh, y yes, the return on investment, it was yeah. positive. I, I okay. did say it upside down, you're right. <laughs> um, the um, and, and he said, but you don't understand. It, it's not two things. One is, it's not whether or not it will make more money than we if we uh, didn't do it. You know, you, the amount of money it takes to put the accessibility in is is less than the amount we will make doing it. The question is, if we spend the money and the time and the engineers doing the accessibility, what aren't they doing? Mm. Could they be doing something else that would make more? Oh, I see. Yeah. The other thing he said is it doesn't matter if it is even make more than the other. It's whether or not they believe it. And so when this comes up and we have two things on the plate, one of them is to make it accessible and one of them is to make pink cases for uh, teenage uh, girls, um, if the CEO thinks that pink cases for, te uh, for teenage girls is going to make more money than the accessibility, it doesn't matter what the truth is. It's right. going to be pink cases. Um, right. And um, because 
Um, and, and there's a second thing that uh, came out of all of my discussion. I spent a lot of time worked with over 50 companies, and that is um, an understanding that um, the, the we actually did a large study and we went in and looked at companies that did accessibility and didn't do accessibility and and, and whether it, it when they did it once it stayed or disappeared on the next product you oh. know and things oh, and we and we were going to do a big uh, regression equation across all the factors to find out what you know what the combination of factors caused it and it turned out there was only one factor that actually caused stuff to be um, to be accessible or stay accessible uh, and and that was uh, profits <laughs> and and then people say, oh, but but people have done this for – but very often if you actually dug on down deeper, what you'd find out was that in fact the um, the goodwill that you generated – in one case, there were products for the telecom and so they were going to go to the FCC and they had to make all these FCC requirements. But if they had it accessible, they became – um, they got a very positive glow at the FCC, and that helped him in whatever else that they were trying to do with the FCC uh, and things like this. So the, the now that's not to say people in companies aren't really want to do this stuff, but um, a couple of examples. Um, so we were working with with Apple in the very very early days. Apple was one of the companies that first put accessibility into their product, into their mainstream products. Um, as a matter of fact, in the 1980s, um, I was able to uh, I was invited to come back every three months and meet with their team and try to get things to be accessible. Um, matter of fact, the first time I came in. Uh, I went in, and Randy Patat was the head of product development there, um, product manager or uh, VP of product or whatever. I don't know what the title was. And he brought me in, and, and he said, um, "I said, well, what would you like me to do?" He said, well, "I'd like you to make all of our products accessible." And I said, "Well, how do you how do I do that?" Because he'd heard something. Alan Brightman had arranged for us to do some presentations to uh, him and, and and John Scully was. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, president of Apple at the time. And um, uh, so Alan Brightman had had brokered this and uh, gotten this in. And uh, so then Randy Batet invited me to come back every three months. And uh, he said, I want to make our products accessible. I said, well, how, how would I do that? And he said, well, that's what I brought you here for. And I said, well, no, no, no. I mean, how do I go about doing it? And he said, um, well, uh, you just have to talk to them and, and convince them to do it. Um, I've set up appointments with every one of our product teams. Um, and here it is. And he handed me a document that gave uh, all of their products and all their code names and all of their, uh, you know, uh, risk. It was an amazing document. Wow. Uh, that uh, it was all of the secret stuff, including profit margins and risks and, and all that stuff for all of every one of their products. Um and he said, I've set up the meetings and he said, uh, and you have 40K on the system disk to uh, to put any solutions that you have or to implement them, to get them into the operating systems. Now, 40K in the 1980s is a massive number, isn't it? I mean, that's a lot, well, of, a lot of space. Yeah. So when I would show up in these meetings, they were they would first of all look at each other and say, what can we say? And he and uh, he went with me to the first meetings uh, and he would say. Well, um, Dr. Vanderheiden here is uh, uh, is able to uh, 
has permission to uh, hear about stuff that I'm not uh, allowed to hear about or something like that, um, which, of course, was not true. But um, the uh, basically, he said I had they could talk about anything they wanted with me. And that was impressive. Um, but um, what I found out later, and I didn't, I just found out by accident as I mentioned it, is at one point I was talking to somebody and and uh, and they said, uh, yeah, but but uh, we could get it in, but I don't know if we can get it into the code. And I said, oh, I have 40K on the system disk. And there was this draws, <laughs> jaws dropped around the room. It was like, you have 40K on the system disk? So and me, that was the Let me try most- to bring that into perspective. Am I, am I doing the math correctly? I seem to remember my 512K Mac booting on a 400 kilobyte uh, floppy disk. Was it 400 yes. kilobytes? Yes. So you had 10%? Of the system uh, disk? On, that can't be right. Yeah, but you remember the, the sometimes you had to put in more than one disk. But yes, I had 40K on the system disk. So yeah, well, I only had one floppy drive. So I only had one disk that went yeah. in in 1984. No, no, it was an astounding thing to have. Wow. Uh, and um, the, and whose uh, decision was, do you know whose decision it was to give you 40K? Was that, uh, was that uh, uh, Patat? Randy Patat. Yeah, Randy Patat, I'm guessing. Wow. So... Do you know whether he made a correlation to profit? Or no, was he just a visionary? It was Randy. Randy did it because he decided it was just it's something that they should do. Um, and the nice thing is that in those days uh, and still, uh, you know, Apple is is a little bit of uh, uh, we do things differently, you know, kind yeah. of things. But um, the as you would go around and and I would talk to them and um, I spent a lot of time. One of the things that I did is whenever there were a couple of things they accidentally did that made things really accessible. And so I, you know, pick those out right away and talk about all of them and, and make sure they didn't go away. Cause sometimes people will do things. Uh, in those days they were making a, a portable and the handle, you pushed it in to open it and it would unlock it. Whereas most of the laptops had a latch on each side. And if you only have one hand, you can undo the latch on one side and then you let go and do the unlatch on the other side. And then you, you have to let go and go back and go back and forth and you can't ever get it open with one hand. Ah. Um, you have to have two hands each doing a latch at the same time. Um, and so it would be very easy for them to have one, you know, one year that did it one way. And then the next year they designed one with a latch on each side. So you wanted them to pay attention yeah. that these were, these were things to keep right. doing. So, uh, but it, it, again, there's just some of the realities. I remember there was uh, one, we were trying to get a feature in. Um, uh, I guess it's so far back I can talk about it. But Ed Ticott was uh, in charge of um, doing the keyboards uh, stuff. And one day I was there and he said, he pulled me aside and he says, well, Greg, he said, um, the sticky keys feature to let you use the keyboard with one hand. And the sticky keys, and he said, he says, I, I implemented on Saturday, but I don't know um, how to tell anybody. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, um, we have this strict orders here that you're never supposed to work on anything except the top two priorities. And um, so, but it it seemed pretty straightforward. So last Saturday, I just did it. And it just did it, you know, a Saturday afternoon. And uh, it was really quick and easy, actually. And he said, but I don't know how to tell my boss without getting in trouble because of this policy. And I said, well, you have to work on Saturdays. And he said, no, no, we're not have to work on Saturdays, but if we are working, we have to work on the priority items. Um, (laughs) And this is a pretty much a rule throughout industry, you know, that um, unless they have these, like they have 
um, at, at Google where you one day a week you can work on what you want to. Yeah. Um, most places, if you're supposed to work on what the stuff is and how many hours you work, that's kind of up to you. But you are not supposed to say, I'm working lots of hours, so I get to work on what I want to. You have to be working on uh-huh. the stuff. So I spent uh, three months trying to figure out that, you know, till I came back or six, whatever week, I forgot it was, uh, three months, um, trying to figure out how to do it. By the time I came back, he said, oh, don't worry about it. He said, it came up in a meeting one time and and I said, oh, I'd done it a month ago. Because I'd done it a month ago, (laughs) I couldn't be in trouble He was safe. (laughs) Like, it's not like I'm currently spending time. That's money or time already spent. Oh, it was a month ago I did it. It Oh, that's funny. That's funny. There was another one that's really amazing. Um, And this will get a little technical for some of them, but in the old, uh, in the Apple IIe, the programs, there was no operating system, per se. And so the programs literally read the hardware. So if a program wanted to look at your keystrokes, it literally looked at the hardware keyboard encoder on the computer to look and see if there was a key waiting for it. So as you type, they would go into the encoder and the system would come down. So um, we had this feature called Sticky Keys, which was implemented well, tell the audience what Sticky Keys is. I just realized people so might not know. Keys, uh, um, uh, just think if you – well, I'll tell you a funny story. Sticky Keys lets you operate the keyboard with one hand. Try to uh, take one finger and type your email, and you can't because mm-hmm. you can't type the at sign. Right. Because you have to hold on the shift key and the at sign at the same time. Okay. And you can't do a control C. You can't do a – uh, control R because you with one finger. So anybody who used a head stick or even one hand um, uh, wasn't able to. I had a uh, ran into a person who used a mouth stick, a stick in his mouth. He, he had polio, so he had no use of his arms, and he used a computer. And he used to actually take a little stack of nickels that he had soldered together, and he soldered a little copper loop on the top. And he would literally take every time he wanted to type a capital letter, he would take his mouth stick pick up that little stack of coins and set it on the shift key, type the characters, <laughs> pick it up off the shift key. And you had to have two of them. If you wanted to do a control shift, you had to pick one up, set it on the control key, pick one up, oh set it on the shift gosh. key. Oh, my gosh. And then he could type a character, and then he had to pick one back off, and then he had to pick one back off. That's an inventive solution. I'll give him that. And the fact <laughs> that he soldered it. You know, yes. now, now I'm picturing him well, soldering it. he had somebody it. soldered it. He obviously didn't do it. Well, I don't know. Maybe he did. this well, guy maybe sounds he pretty good. He might have done it. Pretty- it was amazing what he could do with his mouse stick. Yeah, um, so sticky so keys allows you to... Keys, you just tap five times on the shift key. Um, and uh, and it's now built into every operating system. You can get it in Linux, Mac, PC. Oh, cool. um, it's even in the sticky keys. It's even in the, in your iOS and tablets and stuff like this when you use a, a, an external keyboard. Um, and so you just once it's sticky, then you can just push the shift key and a T and you get a capital T. If I do a control alternate delete on a on a PC, you'd get a control alternate delete, and you could reboot your computer. Okay. Um, so you'd be able to just use it. So that's what Sticky Keys was. Well, um, the the way you do that, of course, is all in software in the operating system. And um, so we were there one time, and and I was talking with the the, uh, the people on the working on the two E. Uh, and we had implemented on the 2GS because it had an operating system. Um, and I showed up one time, and this uh, fellow said, he says, come here, Craig. And, and, and he had this big grin on his face. And um, and I said, uh, what's that? And he says, I implemented sticky keys on the Apple. 
to e uh-huh. and i said well i said yeah i you know maybe for your software but but it won't work for other people's software you know it works with everybody's i say i said no i said they they directly read the keyboard register the only way you could do that is if you and i stared at him and he said yep he said <laughs> you didn't and he said yep he actually even though they were using a stock keyboard encoder he had custom silicon made that oh. um so that he could tell the keyboard register well he, what he did is he told the people who were making the keyboard register he wanted the ability to be able to inject keystrokes into it that would then come back out of it um, and they did it when they were doing a redesign of their encoder so then he had it so that you could run a program like a scanning programmer uh, which means it lights the characters up and you just have to do a sip or a puff or a morse code program and you just tell the keyboard register um, that you wanted it to give you back. So you'd push a keystroke into it. And then the other software, when it was running, would ask for a keystroke and the keyboard register would give it back as if it had been typed, even though it hadn't been. So it was amazing. Now, why did he do that? Well, um, he was always supportive, but one day he came to me, I came in and and he was just all excited. And and he said, you know, I was up to the, where was it? users group, um, Berkeley users group, or it was one of the user groups, or maybe the Seattle one. And he says, they make us do that. They make us go up and, and, uh, and, and visit the user groups and stuff. And I went up there and there was this, there was this guy in a wheelchair and, and he was using this computer. And I went, yeah. He said, no, you don't understand. He wasn't, he was programming the computer. And I went, yeah. He said, no, no, you don't understand. I mean, he was actually writing programs on the computer. And I went, yeah, yeah. Why? I mean, he had cerebral palsy. And, and so, so what, um, right? uh, you know, you know, so what was it? He said, no, no, you don't understand. The other programmers looked up to him because he was such a good programmer. And he just, it was this, this total mind shift on him that people with disabilities aren't those poor people we do things for. Yeah but that they were actually wow. people just like everybody else and that you could have one who was who was the best programmer um, at this user group had cerebral palsy and could barely type. And so, you know, that, you know, it was, it was shortly after that, I think one of the two visits after that, that, that he came up to me with this Apple IIe where he'd built it in. Oh, um, cool. Because um, this guy was using sticky keys on, on the other version. Um, but that he gave, just really that story gives me chills. That, that's, you know, I, I'm sure looking back, it was obvious to him, but the light hadn't gone on for him yet. Yeah, it, it's it's sort of um, I think it happens to all of us to, at some point. Um, when I was originally asked to go out to help with this young lad at the school, uh, I had to be tricked because. I just thought, you know, helping people with cerebral palsy, I had a picture of standing in a pool holding some kid who's, you know, splashing in the water or something like that. You know, I I didn't – it was something you did for people, not with people or something. And mm-hmm. when I got out there, it, the, the personality of that young 12-year-old was just like, wow, this is a neat kid and he's, he's stuck – you know, trapped, if you will, it sounds dramatic, but, but he was, and, and it was something, oh, there's gotta be something we can do. 
Um, and then over time, as you begin working in the field and you start meeting people, instead of being people you're doing things for, it's people you're doing things with. Um, yeah. And when you have colleagues and you meet other people, uh, you know, and you get from the point where when we were young and again, when I met this young lad, I was a senior in college. That was the first person with a disability I had ever seen in my life, except on TV. Wow. It was a different world. I later actually we had a clinic. And one day in the clinic, somebody came in and said, oh, your cousin's here. And I said, my cousin? And he said, yeah. He says he's your uh, first or second cousin. I think I forgot what it was. Um, and, uh, well, I ran a clinic for people with severe cerebral palsy who couldn't speak or write or anything. And I'm going, I don't have any cousins like that. So uh, I went in, and he was my uh, patient that day. So um, we went in, and we were working up a, a means of communication and stuff for him and stuff. And he said, oh, yeah, he was and things. And so that night I called mom up, and she said, oh, yeah, yeah, he's your cousin. And I went, <laughs> I had a cousin. She said, yeah. As a matter of fact, he was born uh, like a day before or after you were. And you and never so, met. And, and, and so his mom and my mom and me, which my mom, um, would compare. And, and that's when she decided, figured out he had cerebral palsy was that you, Greg, were, were progressing through all these physical stages, uh, you know, crawling and doing all this stuff and so fast. And, and he wasn't doing any of these things. And so my mom had six kids. I was the third one. So I would think you could compare, but you never remember exactly when in, in the child's life they did what. Right. But since we were both born at the same time, you could compare. And I said, well, how come I never knew about it? And she said, um, I, she just, they just never didn't hang never out. come to any of the family gatherings or stuff like that. He just wasn't there. Wow. Um, you know, and, back, to, back to what you were yeah. saying about, uh, about changing your perspective, changing to doing stuff with people. One of the ways I'm turning my head in, in trying to grok this concept that you're, you're talking about right now is literally just changing the way I say things. I don't, I'm, I'm trying to not say blind people, say people with visual impairments. Yes. Right. And, and it, it came from, I heard somebody say enslaved people as opposed to slaves. These people weren't slaves as their identity. They were people who were enslaved. Yeah, you know, people yes. who who right. have it's, autism it's not, as opposed to you're an autistic person. Exactly. So it's, it's a sidecar, uh, not a not an identity. Right. And, and and so uh, when we're talking to people, we would say, uh, "Would you like to be a woman engineer, uh, <laughs> or would you like to be an engineer who is a woman and who also is, you know, either blonde or brunette or uh, or uh, African American or, or or British or whatever?" But you don't want to be a British engineer you want to be an engineer who is yeah. so you know what oh, I can are resonate you to that one yeah. yeah what 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 are you and what's your the thing you are in in the context and then you're, you're a lot of things okay you're you're tall short uh, skinny wide you know whatever the heck people are um but you don't want to be say oh yeah uh, uh, she's a wide engineer you know it's like <laughs> what where did that come in well and it's you like know? that first kid that you met right he's a smart yeah. aleck kid who happen to have cerebral, cerebral palsy, right? Exactly, exactly. And so yeah. um, they call it people first is what it's called. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so it's people who have um, rather than uh, than, than, than the disability uh, something. first. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Not a disabled person, you're a person with a disability. Um, it's it's funny how those little word changes help, though. 
right? It helps oh, yeah. your head it, a little bit to start to understand, yeah. I think. And, and, uh, and, and, and it always helps if you, you put it around on something that relates to the person, you know, um, you know, you're, a, even if you said you're a male engineer, it's like, you know, where did gender have to come in? You know, I, I'm just an engineer. Right. Um, right. Well, and a lot it, of those uh, start with, uh, you're an engineer or a female engineer. Because no, engineer right. is male, right? That's right. Yeah. I ha- as a female engineer, I have issues with that. <laughs> that's right. Hey, I, yeah. I want to get back to uh, talking about the the forty k of system disk. I'm trying to picture how you used that. Like, what kind of projects were people working on where they where you said, "Okay, I'm going to well, give you two kilobytes." The, yeah, the sticky keys took some some, uh, but that was very small. I don't know if it was a. Uh, even a kilobyte of code, it was uh, it wasn't a very hard thing. But we had mouse keys. We had, and that's where you could use the uh, keyboard to drive your mouse. Um, mm-hmm. um, so if you couldn't use a mouse, uh, you could actually use the keys on your mouse. And it was interesting because we did mouse keys, and uh, and suddenly the number one usage of it was all the graphics programs. If in those days you did it with a mouse, if you grabbed onto uh, something on a, a graphics and you tried to move it, you always had to move it about three pixels before it would move at all. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you kept bumming. Well, once it jumps, now you can't remember where it was. So how right. do you move something one pixel, right? Okay. So it was easy with sticky keys because you just move to it, you'd pick it up, and you'd go three to the left, two to the right, and drop you mean, it. You mean mouse would... keys, not sticky keys? Ah, uh, mouse keys. Thank okay, you. Okay, good. Hey, so doing really good. Well, I'm I'm actually learning as we go because each time you say one of these things, I'm looking in the uh, system preferences to see if it exists today, and I I have actually never looked at mouse keys before. It's in accessibilities yep. uh, allows a pointer to be controlled using the keyboard keys or number pad. Yep. Ah. So sticky keys, mouse keys. Um, we had uh, serial keys that allow you to use one computer to control another one. Uh, we now have when the USB came out and stuff, we can now get by without that. Um, uh, slow keys that would allow people uh, and uh, bounce keys for people who like had a tremor. So there were a bunch of different things that we had. As a matter of fact, in Windows 95, um, the um, uh, Microsoft licensed nine different features from us. Royalty, we gave royalty free. Um, they were built into the Windows operating system. That was actually nine of the first 10 accessibility features were or license that way. Um, and those are all uh, still present today. Uh, most all of them, I, the serial keys, as I said, is gone. And and the neat part is is uh, how much more they've done. So sometimes it's like um, priming the pump and you get people going uh, and then uh, they just keep building and building. So um, the um, it, it's very interesting, but it's very different in each company. So well, yeah, at one time, that, was, what you're kind of talking about is is if it becomes part of the culture, like everybody around you does accessibility as part of their their product development, then you would think to well, do it. it. Maybe it usually doesn't get to be everybody around you because um, there's most of the people around you don't know anything don't know anything about it when they first come because that's not what you learn in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yes, over time they will uh, pick that up. Um, but it's also a pride. When the iPhone first came out, um, and this is a really interesting story, um, uh, it came out, I got one, and I'm in my car, and with me is, is Kelly Ford, who was with the Trace Center back then, and, and he said, uh, he had heard all about this, this iPhone, everybody's raving about it, he said, can, um, can, I, uh, can I see it? And I said, sure, so I handed it to him, 
And the original iPhone, he feels it. It's, it was glass front and back. Um, you can't tell the front from the back, except wow. for one thing, and that is the little home button that was on the original iPhone. And he goes, he just said, I felt one side, I felt the other side, and I started to panic. Um, he, because the phone was the only thing a blind person knew they could use. Okay. Everything else, computers, all this kind of, everything is visual, you know, TVs, you know, microwaves. I mean, everything in the world is visual, but the phone was something a blind person could always use just flat out. No problem. Um, even the dials they could handle touch tones, they could handle, um, no problem at all. And he picked up that iPhone and, uh, and even, uh, portable phones they could handle because they could feel the keys and do them. Yeah. But this iPhone scared the bejesus out of him. And, the, so um, it was a problem because they were now making these things. And, of course, everybody else was now mimicking them. And it was getting very, very scary. And so um, Apple um, uh, looked at the problem and, uh, uh, and built the ability for a blind person to use their phone into the iPhone in, you know, one of the – uh, iterations. But the interesting thing about the iPhone is that they, all the software is written off of, of software kits. Um, and so, um, when you build your own app, you build it by drag and drop. A lot of it's drag and drop. Um, so the, uh, uh, as a result, the, uh, when you build it, you build it with Apple's components. So when they built the accessibility and they built it into their phone, all of a sudden, not only would a blind person use their phone, but almost all the apps that were available were suddenly also accessible accidentally <laughs> because people built them out of Apple's components that they had wired the accessibility into. And so overnight, the iPhone became just an overnight sensation. They got all these awards and everybody yelling, you know, praising them and all this stuff. And then the next one they did and the next one they did and and they got on a roll and they have put more stuff into the iPhone than you'd ever believe. There's so, go into the accessibility section of an iPhone and it goes on and on and on. All this stuff they've built into these things. It's just amazing. I should but show the, you. I did a, uh, uh, a mind map on iOS 11. I decided to mind map all of the settings. It yeah. is, it, I, if, it, if I printed it uh, 11 inches wide, it would be five and a half inches tall. And yeah. well over 50% of it is the accessibility section. It's, is that right? Yeah. It's, I, I'll send it's you a just, screenshot of it. It's hilarious. But you can see this massive chunk. It's, well, it's because, um, as you said, no two people with disabilities are alike. So if you put the feature in, then you have settings for each feature. Um, but the um, – uh, so it's just been amazing. But the most – not only has this just revolutionized sort of accessibility for people who are blind and for all these people with these other disabilities – but it also put to rest one thing, and that is for, for decades, it was always, we can't build in accessibility because it'll be ugly. Accessibility makes oh. the computer less usable. If uh, it makes it less sellable, it makes it less saleable. And when Apple did this, nobody could ever argue that you didn't because they had all the accessibility in the most stylish, most popular, most profitable yeah. product that there was available and it wasn't just an accessibility feature it was a lot of them and so uh it really put to rest that accessibility needs to make a product um you know ugly or, or hard to use or anything else it, interesting it, 
They're there. They're I have talked to uh, certain vendors where I usually try to test things for uh, for voiceover, and yeah. I've written to, to many where I'll say, okay, you know, you did all this right, you did all this right over here, but, you know, in this one section, this back button isn't labeled, or, or there's no, you know, this is a graphic and it should be a button, and so often they'll go, really? My app's accessible? Huh. <laughs> I didn't know that, you know, and and so then they get they get kind of interesting going. Well, you know, yeah. I might as well do that last one. But I think That's that right. they're they're like you say the kits have the if you put a back button in, it's called a back button. It knows that it's a back button. Two quick Apple stories. Um, one of them is when I started working with them uh, way back in the very very beginning. I went around and met with all the people, and and I found uh, three things that they had accidentally done that were accessible um, without even knowing about accessibility yet. And so I created a scorecard of eight things and I had three of them checked off. And literally it was like this Apple accessibility scorecard and it had three big green check marks and then four more. And then um, next time I came back, uh, there was four green check marks and four more. And then there were (laughs) five green check marks and five more. It was just slowly, you know, but they always had this big, you know, like all this progress that they had made. But the funniest story was um, I got a call one day from Chris Espinoza, um, who is VP of software. And uh, and I had met him once. Uh, I knew who he was. Uh, the VP of software does not call me. Right. So I get this call from uh, from Chris Espinoza and he says, hi, he says, I'm Chris Espinoza. I'm the VP. And, you know, and I oh, I know who you are. I said and he said. He said that that feature where you can use the keyboard with one hand, he said, yeah, he said, how do you turn that on? And I said, oh, it's it's right there in the instruction manual. You can even find it easy because that section's in large print. And he said, he said, this is software engineering. We don't have any instruction manuals here. Um, so and I said, oh, OK, well, then just tap on the shift key five times. So he did. And I said, do you see it? And he goes, yep. And he said, um, thank you. And I said, why do you ask? And he said, well, Last week I was in Paris and I slipped and fell and I shattered my elbow, oh. and my arm is now my arm is now taped to my chest, oh. and I can't get my work done. So, oh, wow. a month after they released the Mac OS with sticky keys in it, the VP of Engineer needed it in order wow. to. Yeah, that that really brings it home, doesn't it? You know, a lot of my uh, my friends who have disabilities refer to those of us without them as currently abled. Yeah, right? temporarily able-bodied. Tabs. Temporarily able-bodied. Yeah, heard. and and you hope you live long enough that you're going to need some of this stuff, right? If you don't, well, it's not a good day. Mary Pat Radabaugh used to say, um, "There, um, there's only two two people: people who have disabilities uh, and people who are going to acquire disabilities if they live long enough." Yeah. Um, or you, the other thing she would say, you only have two choices. You're either going to have disabilities or you're going to die first. Um, <laughs> which would you rather have? Yeah, <laughs> what route would you like to go? Yeah. So I, I tell my students uh, that I said, I, you really need to get this stuff because, um, uh, you know, I, I just hit 70. So um, I'm going to be needing this stuff. And um, I need the, you guys to work on this for me. <laughs> and, and, but the stuff I'm going to need isn't the stuff that you're designing today. It's the stuff you're going to design that I can't figure out how to use uh, that isn't going to be accessible. So I got to figure out how to make it so that it'll be there when I get there. Yeah, that is really interesting. You know, um, w- one thing talking about about the the culture and who gets it and who doesn't and and how sometimes it's permeating in a company. 
um, I worked for a short while on the uh, the board of the computer science department at, at uh, Santa Monica City College. And one mm-hmm. of the things I just kept trying to get get through to them there was that they shouldn't have like they had a professor who was in charge of accessibility. Okay, she's always yapping about accessibility. And then they had this professor over here always was bothering them about security. And I said, you know, I, I, I don't think that's the, the route I would take. I would think that, like, when you're doing beginning programming, you're, you're programming with security and accessibility in mind from the, from the start of it. That it has to be then the foundation. It's, it's very interesting that you mentioned that. But that's one of the things we try to get across to people is that accessibility is not something that you add on. It's like security. You have to build it in all the way from the bottom to the top. And, and it's not that hard if you, if you do it right and you build it in. If you try and do it afterwards, you end up having just like remodeling your house and adding a, a bathroom in the middle of the house uh, after the house is all built. You got to tear up the concrete in the floor. You got to, you know, the walls. I mean, how are you going to get the plumbing up to the place? It's just really hard to do after the fact, but it's not very hard to do uh, if you do it uh, when you're doing it in the first place. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how much you know about my show, but one of the one of the shows that I do is a, a show called Programming by Stealth, where a gentleman named Bart Bouchatz out of Ireland is teaching me to program. And so the, the audience learns to program along with me. I'm the, I'm the dumb stooge in the front row raising their hand all the time going, wait, wait, I don't understand. And in theory, I ask the questions that help everybody else understand. Um, but one of the things Bart did was, you know, he's developed this course training on his own. And he decided that every command where, he, where accessibility existed, like he taught all the ARIA labeled by stuff in, yeah, right. in HTML. Because why not teach it? Why not have that be part of the way you write? You know? And it turns out that if you do that, you are setting your program up, first of all, to be more accessible, more searchable, um, all your content's more searchable. And uh, as we get into agent or agent uh, operation, um, automation, uh, testing, uh, we were doing it with a number of places. And the number one use of the accessibility features was automated testing. Oh, really? All of these companies just loved it because for the first time, they could actually do an automated test because you could have a computer operate the computer. And before oh. you couldn't. Oh. Now, assistive technology is matter of fact in WCAG you'll see we always talk about program um, programmatically determinable which means that a program can figure it out and that's what aria and stuff like that is that you lay a page out so that a sighted person can see it and understand it but a but a computer can't because it's it's visually oriented until you get machine vision and all that which is something we're trying to work for someday we, we can do a podcast on the other work we're talking about which is how can we eliminate uh, all of the, uh, the needs for companies to build accessibility into their products by creating uh, an infobot that could see and operate anything that 50 percent tile person could operate? So if half the population can figure it out, not the whole, just half, um, then we'd be able to create an infobot that could understand. And then it could represent the information to somebody who's blind not as an audio interface interpreting a visual interface, but what would the interface to our computer be if none of us could see? Okay? Okay. Uh, So instead of having a screen reader, you have an audio interface to a device. So at any rate, that uh, is a a whole other larger topic, but 
it uh, really is something that would never be possible before. But this would not only open up for people who are blind, but also cognitive disabilities, which are really poorly served today with, um, they're just not good cognitive uh, AT. But the kinds of things you're talking about, making things so they're more um, machine readable, if you will, uh, helps lots of different disabilities. So you use some terms I'm pretty sure most people would know about, like WCAG and uh, so what was the reference that you made to that? Oh, uh, WCAG is the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines. Uh, and it's the um, what you do to a web page so that you can make it so that people with disabilities can use it. And m- many of the things you do to the page are just making it so it's programmatically determinable, which means that the information um, that a machine or a screen reader is is the one of the big reasons. But it's not just a machine reader. It could be a voicer. It could be something so that you can do voice control of the computer. It could be so that the page could be represented for somebody with a cognitive disability in a different way. Um, you just make it so that the page could be uh, more easily understand understandable uh, by uh, machines. And then uh, the information can be represented in a form uh, that works. But oh, it also means that agents could activate it, uh, access it, search agents, um, and all sorts of other kinds of things that are coming. And uh, eventually, we may find that we don't interface with our computer using a keyboard, but by talking to an agent and then interfaces with the content on the web, if they can access it and understand it. Oh, interesting. So this this field certainly has a long way to go. It's come a long ways, but it sounds like you see a, a lot of future interesting things happening with it. Oh, yeah. It, it's, even if you meet all of the web content accessibility guidelines, um, the page is only minimally accessible. Um, there's a lot more things that need to be done, but there's no way to test them. So you can't put in a, in a, a, a regulation or something that you must do this, but uh, but you can't measure if you've done it. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, things like, you know, write more clearly, you can't write that because what is, what does clearly mean? Um, yeah. and things like that. So it's a lot of things that can make, uh, pages, but with this, with AI and where we're going in the future, um, we could make an address and make things more accessible. We could also have an interface for old people. You know that we keep changing the interface. It drives all of us crazy. Um, You get a new program and they decided to give you a modern interface. Now you can't figure out how to do anything. And you are technically adroit, et cetera. How about people who are hanging on by their fingernails to start with? And then they switch everything around on them. Or somebody who's old who knows how to do something can't really learn new things well anymore and then you rearrange everything well again with this other approach where it's representing to you um you can keep changing the way the interface is but it could be presented to the person in the same stable way in a more consistent way that's yeah Yeah. that's interesting yeah, you make me think. Uh, I don't remember if I talked to you about my father the last time we talked, but uh, my father was an engineer with uh, twelve patents, brilliant guy. But I remember uh, my my brother had set him up with a computer. It was an IBM AT uh, running DOS, and right. he he wrote some code that allowed him to type BUS, and it would change to his business directory, and it would launch WordPerfect. And yeah. then, uh, if he wanted to get into his church directory. 
he would quit WordPerfect, type C-H-U, and it would change to his church directory and launch WordPerfect. And I yeah. tried to show him. I said, you know, I bet somewhere in these menus there's a way to just change directory and stay in WordPerfect. And his reaction really surprised me. He said, Allison, you stop messing with this. I'm going to have a heart attack. I don't want you to change this. I know exactly how this works. Stop touching it. Exactly. And I was I was so shocked because, you know, he was the most curious mind I ever knew. And yet, man, I, he was hanging on by his fingernails doing this, just like you described. We don't have time here, but um, we're just doing a program called Morphic to allow people to create very, very, very ultra simple interfaces for people who are older. Um, uh, I know one person whose who's father uh, is a physics professor, um, but now... It takes them, they have weekly phone calls and it takes them 20 minutes. He has to call 20 minutes before the family phone call uh, to get his father onto the call. Yeah. Every week, not once, every week. Every week. Every yeah, week. I've heard that kind and of story. Like for months, it's every week because his father just can't, can't do it anymore, can't figure it out. And so they have to slowly walk him through the whole thing. And, and he'll, even though you're giving him step by step instructions, he'll, He'll either jump ahead or I don't know what he does, but he just gets lost and then you have to start over and, and finally you get him on and then you say, okay, now just leave it alone and, and everybody else will be along. And I've had like three, four or five people that I know that talk about same thing that they have an older parent that every week they have to spend 10 to 20 minutes to get them onto the call. Mm -hmm. And so we make it so that um, there's just a button. You just push the button and bingo, you're, you're in the call. Yeah, so uh, what what Greg is talking about is the interview that I did with him about this product Morphic, and I'll put a link in the show notes to that oh, yeah. inter that interview with and uh, and a timestamp on that so people can hear it because we go kind of into detail, and I, I'm yeah. looking forward to to playing with Morphic Plus when it uh, comes into beta when I can get to uh, get to play with it too, and and I'll probably Two talk weeks. about it again. I imagine two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, hot, two weeks. Hot diggity. I'll be standing by. Well, Greg, this has been fascinating, as much fun as I hoped it would be even more. Um, if people wanted to follow your work or learn more, where would they go? Uh, well, uh, uh, trace.umd.edu, T-R-A-C-E.umd.edu is uh, the, the Trace Center's uh, website. Um, and then uh, Morphic, and uh, they can also look at gpii.net. Uh, and that'll take you to a bunch of stuff we've done on trying to create a global public inclusive uh, infrastructure. Um, and that has some very concrete things like a directory of all of the products around the world for accessibility to ICT, uh, a developer space, um, and, and morphic, things like this that are uh, concrete solutions. Great. I will put all those links in the show notes. Uh, thank you, Greg, for coming on again. This was, this was fantastic. Really had a lot of fun. No, it's a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad-supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something, or maybe you were just entertained, consider contributing to the Podfeet podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says Support the Show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the NoSilla Castaways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. 
Maybe you want to talk to other Nocilla castaways. There's two great places to do that. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack, or you can join our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.